Welcome to the OmniWin Project podcast, where we are accelerating the co-creation of the future of our democracy. My name is Duncan Autry, and I am a conflict transformation catalyst. I'm the creator of the OmniWin Project, and I'm your host. The goal of this project is to facilitate the healing and evolution of our democratic systems and our political culture so that together we can co-create a future that works for everyone. What that means is that if you're tired of our polarized and divisive political culture, or if you're worried about the impact of today's decisions on future generations, well then you're in the right place. I believe that the world is ready for change, and I know that we have answers to most of the problems that we're facing. In this podcast, I'm going to be sharing them with you. I'm in this for the long haul, and I hope that you'll join me. So come on over to the OmniWinProject.com where you can get more information, media, resources, and inspiration. And of course, don't forget to subscribe to the OmniWin Project podcast. Welcome to the OmniWin Project. The guest on today's show is Bill Shireman. Bill is a social entrepreneur, an environmental policy innovator, and a rare San Francisco Republican. He is the co-founder and the co-author of In This Together. In This Together is a campaign to bring people from all sides of the political spectrum, including capitalists, activists, conservatives, and progressives, to work together to heal our environment and save our democracy. Bill and In This Together are growing a diverse bipartisan community of America's silenced majority the common sense problem solvers that have been marginalized by the politics of fear, anger, and division. I invited Bill to the OmniWin Project podcast because I love his analysis of what is broken in our political system, and I share his passion for finding ways to actually solve the problems that we're facing in our world today. Bill was also the last guest on my previous podcast, Fractal Friends. And that conversation was a huge inspiration for starting the OmniWin Project podcast. I start this conversation by summarizing some of the key points of the last time that we talked. And then Bill and I go on to talk about the problems of creating one-size-fits-all legislation because it's inherently out of sync with the complex dynamic system that is our country and our democracy. We talk about strategies for empowering and mobilizing that silence majority that actually rather solve problems than win an argument. And we talk about what is and what can be possible in a real democracy, a democracy where actual citizens with diverse perspectives participate in thoughtful, deliberative conversations about the most important issues that we're facing. Thank you for listening to The OmniWin Project. This episode is recorded in July of the year 2022. Now, please enjoy the conversation with Bill Shireman. Bill, I'm so glad to be talking to you again. Welcome to the OmniWin Project. Thank you. It's a pleasure and an honor to be with you, Duncan. Yeah, it's great. And as I was mentioning to you, our last conversation was wrapped up the Fractal Friends was really a profound conversation for me and it's shifted my way of thinking and and I wanted to maybe just start with just a little bit of a summary of some of the stuff that came out of that for me that I think about a lot and see if if it resonates with you and then what mm -hmm. else might you add into the mix 
So here's some highlights from our last conversation. One, in our world, we have about 70% of the population are problem solvers, this kind of quiet, silenced majority that's in the middle and cares more about solving problems than whatever their side is on the political fence. And about 30% of the population, more or less equally divided between left and right, are the warriors, and they're ready to go and fight for their cause no matter what. And our attention in the media industry and the political industrial complex is to give attention to the ones on the extremes because it's better ratings, it's better for lobbyists, it's better for politicians, it's better for campaigns, everyone's going to make more money, and totally happy to have anti-government, pro-business over here and pro-business, anti-government over here. And mm -hmm. both business and government are happy to keep getting funding from that. The thing we're missing is the fact that the citizens are actually the ones in charge. We're the ones who give the businesses money. We're the ones who give politicians votes. So they're us, but we don't recognize that. And then something about this problem-solving center, there's something that was really insightful for me from our last conversation, was that the left and the right not only have complementary ideologies or perspectives in the sense that they're noticing different aspects of the question of politics, but specifically the environment, but they also have complementary skill sets in the sense that one side's really good about the business end and the other one's really good about the ecological preservation side and mm -hmm. that they have complementary skills and that these need to kind of somehow figure out how to come together. And, yeah. and so we spoke right in between, actually, the, right after the election in 2020 and mm -hmm. before we knew who was going to be the next president. And and your book in this together had recently come out and you have since really been really working on trying to get this problem solving majority to move forward so i'm curious how's that going how is that lifting up that silence majority and and what's unfolded for you in the last year and a half or so yes well we've been engaging the public in in communications about just that. As you said very well, about 70% of the population is in this pragmatic middle that is more concerned about actually getting problems solved than ideological purity, as you find on the far left and the far right. But that majority is not spoken to by our media. If you're in the red tent, the red echo chamber, as they say, you're going to hear a minority opinion. And the minority opinion you're going to hear is, interestingly enough, the left extreme minority opinion, because it scares the hell out of folks on the right, whether they're extreme right or moderate right, when they hear that there is a population of socialists that are bent on destroying capitalism and America as it's always been and imposing their authoritarian views about how we should live our lives, they unify. And if you're in the blue tent on the left, you're hearing the 15% most extreme on the right, who are talking about Texas seceding from the union, who are talking about that it's completely legitimate for them to march on and 
take over the Capitol and stop a presidential election vote. And we're hearing that and we're frightened to death of that other side. And yet 70% of us, if we just spoke with each other, can find solutions to the issues that divide us and are nowhere near our extremists. So we tested that in several different ways. We tested it with what we called America in One Room. This was a process that was carried out by Stanford University and the University of Chicago with funding from some of our folks and from Helena Foundation and others. And what, what Stanford and University of Chicago did was they brought together 962 Americans to talk about energy and climate. They surveyed all 962. This was a representative sampling of the country. Everybody was represented. And they surveyed them on energy and climate issues. Then they engaged everybody in discussions, 10 or 12 hours of discussion. Most of it small group, divided them into groups of about 10. So, and then they would come together for large group discussions and to hear from experts and to read research materials and so on. So it was almost like a trial where you had a hundred juries of 10 people each, and they all looked at the same evidence and they all heard a set of broad facts. And what we saw happen in that process, a thousand almost representative Americans is that the right and the left, the red and blue Americans, both started out at partisan positions, talking points that they had been taught on their media around those issues. And they both moved to fact-based positions. So by the end of this discussion, you had these Americans really agreeing, for the most part, on the facts of energy and climate change, and 70% plus agreeing on solutions. What do we agree on? Well, we agree on lots of clean energy choices. That doesn't conform with the left's notion that we need to be 100% solar and wind, all renewable, all electric by 2030. And it also doesn't go along with the extreme rights prescription that we shouldn't care about climate at all, that it's not a real concern, it's not a significant issue, it's not human cause, or if it is, it's not a big deal. They came together and they said, we like solar, we love solar, we love wind. We also want carbon capture and sequestration. We wanna capture the carbon that's out there. We don't think you can just ban fossil fuels of all kinds immediately. We support nuclear power. We support investigation of, hyd of hydrogen. And we like digital power, that is radical, radical efficiency in what we produce. So they support that. They also support conservation. And this is a really interesting area. Right and left love life. You talk about the, the pro-life community being on the right and uh, pro-choice on the left, but it's, those are not contradictory. The environmental movement is a pro-life movement. And on both the right and the left, uh, people are extremely concerned that our oceans are dying, our forests are dying, our land is our diversity is dying, species are going away. And it doesn't matter if you're a hunter who has that primal impulse to hunt for the, the game that we use to sustain us, or if you are a vegan who is fully opposed to the use of animals in any kind of human nutrition, both of those folks uh, cherish nature and they want to protect. 
And then the third thing that we want to do is to actually be kind and, and caring toward each other, and that is to use incentives to help marginalized communities and impacted communities. That is, people who have been historically harmed by, let's say, coal mining or the fossil fuel economy, as well as those who are in communities that are dominated by a technology that's being eclipsed. So people want to be generous and helpful to other people to make the transition easier. So we agree, 70, 80%, sometimes more agree in those areas. So that's what deliberative democracy, that is real democracy, produces. What we see instead, though, is mob democracy, where each side hears only the worst of the other side and is so frightened that they're not engaging with their frontal lobes here, their conscious brains, they're triggered by their back brains, by their limbic system, they're triggered to be in battle with one another. And that's how you make a democracy fail. And it's how you take over if you're a political industry that wants to capture the public's money and power. And that's what yeah, thank you for the unpacking that like that contrast, you know. And it's interesting. The yesterday was the birthday of our democracy, the oldest one on the planet. And at the time, there's our republic, republic where we're having representatives made a lot of sense. But I, but as we're getting more and more savvy as humans, and people want to be engaged and they want to be involved, and so that opportunity to participate is so important and i love the work that the center for deliberative democracy is doing and so forth at over at stanford and america in one room and yeah and so i'm just going to lift up just that some of the things that may make that kind of process work is that deliberation so everyone looking at the same information everyone deciding what questions do we have Let's go get the more information. And so really taking the time to look at the materials. And then there's that participatory aspect where people are starting to talk to each other and ask questions. And I love just that observation that eventually we don't necessarily come to a total consensus, but at least there's agreement on these like very important principles, which otherwise seem almost inaccessible. I'm curious if you have thoughts about deliberative processes and deliberative democracy or participatory democracy is like a, a huge part of what I'm paying attention to in this OmniWin project. And I'm curious if you have any thoughts about what might it take to get politicians to actually pay attention to some of these you know, outcomes of these deliberative processes. Yeah. yeah I think what it's going to take is a uh, is a determination by individuals, enough individuals, three and a half to 5% of us, let's just say 5% of us, one out of 20 of us, make the personal decision that we are going to step up in our democracy, even though we may not be extremists on one side or the other, even though we're not exactly sure what the solutions are, because we have to think about them, that uh, folks who going to their yoga class and folks that are going to church and folks that are taking their kids to school and folks that are in the Girl Scouts and the Boy Scouts and Rotary Clubs and just regular people, whether they are 
progressive left flavored or conservative middle America flavored, regular people deciding that, hey, we are our democracy. And if we can, I would say when we have 5% of us, about 5 million American voters step forward to be the problem solvers and to engage in these processes, we will take political power from the political industry that right now controls our $4.5 trillion in spending every year by dividing the left and the right against each other. That's all we need. And it comes down to individuals making that decision. And for people to make that decision, we have to begin to realize that we're not the only reasonable ones out there, even though it seems like it, that there is actually most of us are pretty reasonable. We just need the opportunity to talk to each other. Wow. So I'm just going to quickly name that, like, the reason why, because I, I, I remember from our last conversation that, like, the reason this 5% is interesting is because everything's in such a razor thin margin in our democracy these days that whatever, if that, group of 5% is willing to say, you know what, I'm going over here because this person actually wants to solve problems. Or if we're going over here because this person wants to solve problems, that will create the incentive to solve the, for the politicians to solve the problems. Because if you can get that kind of swing vote in a way, and yeah. And it has uh, to happen mathematically. The deal is the political system has been, has been gained to the advantage of the two dominant political parties. Now, when you have folks from the, the Trump community saying the election was stolen, the ballots were ripped off and so on, there is some insanity there. And then there's some great sanity there as well. There's a, the elections really are rigged and most elections are stolen in the sense that for two primary reasons. Districts are gerrymandered. That is, the district lines are drawn to the advantage of the ruling party. And so because those districts are drawn to keep the most powerful party in charge, voters don't really have a legitimate choice in the general election, in most elections. They are going to elect one party or the other, and we know which one in each district. And closed primaries mean that the candidates are chosen by those of us who have not become so disgusted that we've quit our party. It's chosen by those of us who are extreme enough to say, yeah, and I'm a member of a political party, so I choose to join because I think we need reasonable people in both parties. But the Republican Party is dominated by the extreme voices in the party. The Democratic Party is not quite as dominated, but close to it by the most extreme in the party. And so the candidates that win nomination have to appeal to those extremists, which means you have a Republican Party and a Democratic Party at the national level that take positions that are only shared by 12 to 20 percent of the public, but it happens to be their base. Right. And that and that's completely undemocratic. 
Oh man. Yeah. This is, I feel like I'm coming to mind just like all the different kind of reforms. I know Andrew Yang has come up with some really great kind of reforms around this kind of how we change our primaries. But yeah, exactly. Somehow if we could get the politicians to shift from playing to their base to playing to the that that little swing group in the middle, the, the problem solvers, it would be really amazing. And so Okay, I'm going to follow this thread, but there's like another piece that yeah. kind of came up with me. So, but that, so there's a way that folks need to get organized to know that they're doing that in a way. And so I know that like you have all sorts of like pledges. We have the Declaration of Interdependence and Climate Unity Pledge and various things. There's different ways to, I guess, what would it look like to sort of get that block to be named or known yeah. as the, yeah. It's, that's, to some degree, that's the great question. That's the $4.5 trillion question. And what we know is that in a few states and districts, a few districts within a few states, elections really are competitive. And so that's why you have folks going around the country to the 15 states that are purple states that, that have some close elections and to the districts that have not been successfully gerrymandered. If we focus our attentions on gathering voters in those districts where races are decided by that half percent, one percent, sometimes two percent, uh, and if our voters, if the problem-solving, common-sense, pragmatic voters in that broad 70% center are the ones that are making the decision, then, as you say, the politicians have to speak to us and not to the extremes in their party. So that's fundamentally what we need to do. I believe that once people understand that the majority will has truly been taken away and that the majority is not as crazy as they look in the media, that the majority, when we talk, actually makes common sense, makes good decisions on almost all these issues, then the people will be aghast at that. And they'll say, well, yes, of course we want our democracy. We're looking at our country where it seems like democracy is failing, but what in fact has happened is that the democracy has been taken away. And that's why we're failing. We're living a system that's controlled by a system, a marketplace that no one is in charge of. And everybody in the system ultimately then panders the dollars that are driven by the fear, anger, and hate. Right. And all as the incentives are pointing to keeping everyone divided and and so forth. So there's another part that you said in this last day. I th there's a for these individuals to say, okay, I actually want to be part of this problem solving. I'm gonna actually gonna put my vote on the line. I'm gonna vote mm -hmm. for a different party because that person actually looks like they're gonna try to solve a problem. And, and and you said part of that is the acceptance that you might not have all the answers. <laughs> and th there's something about. When actually, in this in the OmniWin project, I sort of am thinking about four different fields. There's like mm -hmm. the actual 
processes and skill sets that we can have to communicate across our differences, like the deliberative polling and deliberative processes. Mm -hmm. We have great communication tools. Then there's also like systemic changes, right? So some of these you're talking about with the primaries and I feel like represent us is doing like a lot of good stuff around there. And, Mm -hmm. but just how do we change our system? If we could change the primaries and things could change, or we could build participatory democracy into the process. And then there's the philosophical kind of corner, people who have like the frameworks for understanding what cross-partisan world might look like. But then there's the personal work. And for me, I think this is a part where we get stuck a lot because it's individually to accept, one, I don't have all the answers. And two, and this kind of gets us into some of the systems topic a bit, is this is a complex system the actual solutions to these things are going to be a lot more blurry and nuanced and detailed and there aren't they're just totally don't lend themselves to certainty and we actually don't live in certainty but selling certainty is an easy sell right if you do this we're going to stop or if you do this it's going to happen but saying, hey, you know what? We're going to have to actually just keep on having nuanced, deliberative conversations about this forever. (laughs) It's a tough tough sell, right? And also to trust that, yeah, these people are actually worth talking to, even though you don't like them. So there's a lot about that personal work that I think is really interesting. I think we've learned in the industrial age, the last 300 years or so, that Life is life can be and society can be very predictable if we make big decisions that we're going to build an interstate highway system and we're going to have we're going to all have cars and we're all going to drive at this speed and we're going to put commercial centers here and industrial centers here and residential centers here and and we're going to extract energy and resources and manufacture products and distribute them to everybody. And that linear way of thinking was very powerful. Once we underwent the scientific revolution and the industrial revolution, oh my gosh, we were able to produce a physical abundance like we had never seen as a species before. So naturally, we became pretty entranced with rational, linear thinking. But it only goes so far. And when you're thinking in a line, you're not thinking about the cycles that necessarily compel you to go back to the beginning. We can't consume all the world's natural resources and then throw them away at the end. And we can't adapt if we're so locked into this industrial system that we can't make necessary changes. So we need to go back to, we need to rediscover the wisdom of more traditional, indigenous, small town, local cultures that are very close to their environment and very adaptive to their environment. That kind of subtlety is really where sustainability comes from. And you find an understanding of that both on the left and the right, but you don't find it in the establishment left or right. On the establishment right, the linear right, and the establishment left, the the kind of progressive or liberal 
institutional left. It's all about guaranteeing. We're, we are the pro-life movement. We're gonna define life starting with conception and we're gonna outlaw every, every abortion from that point of conception because that's our total solution. Or we're on the other side, we are pro-choice and we're going to allow a woman to make the choice up until the birth because it is her baby and it is her body and that's her right, absolutely. That's linear thinking that eliminates your view of the details at the local level. Many people identify themselves as pro-life or pro-choice, not because they actually adopt those extreme positions, most pro-life folks don't think that abortion should be uh, illegal in all cases, and most pro-choice people don't believe that abortion should be legal in all cases. But each one has a passion, and they want to hear their passion validated by others. If you're, pro if you're in the pro-life community, you worry that life is being cheated in our materialistic system and that people are disregarding the miracle of conception and you want that to be recognized before you start talking about, yes, okay, this woman is in a very difficult position and maybe abortion should be an option for her. And the same on the, same on the left. People want to know that you understand that women are fully qualified to be the equals, to be treated equally under the law and to be human beings and to have control of their bodies. And once you that once the right expresses that in a way that you can feel that they really resonate, then you're willing to say, okay, I'm not sure that I'm comfortable with abortions in the final trimester as a normal casual thing. And it turns out that people agree, whether they call themselves pro-choice or pro-life, right in the middle there, you've got a, a 70% that can agree on solutions to that issue. Same is true for guns, same is true for immigration, same as proof for climate and the environment. One of the thing, ways I have come to think about this is that if we, on our mind, we can have a topic, or am I this or am I that? And that is easy to organize into that digital binary code, right? It was this or that. And yep. when it's at a conceptual level, but then eventually people actually have to do something. And that is where interesting things happen, right? So very much like a pro-choice person can very easily be like, I am definitely keeping this baby, even though it's really inconvenient for me, right? And someone who's pro-life can be like, oh, I think this is not a good idea, but I am getting rid of this child. And that's interesting because at one point you're like, this is it this or this, but actually real life is 350 million people making a bunch of decisions day to day. And it's really blurry. And it's very much clearly like a complex dynamic system that we're in. And when I'm hearing you talk about the linear thing, I'm noticing that there's a way that it's not just the linear thinking of, is it going to be an absolutely this or an absolutely that? That's part of it. But there's also about trying to make these decisions at a national level, right? Without, yeah. as there's like that taking it to the national level and trying to make one decision for everyone, yeah, it's problematic and especially problematic. And I, I, 
in because when we try to get that let's say pro climate bill through the through congress or something like that we end up getting this 700 page document yeah. that does a hundred other things and I still I'm, I'm still remembering that the COVID relief bill had the thing about releasing the confidential UFO documents. I feel like that's such a good example, right? Someone was like, if you want me to vote on this, you better make re- declassify the UFO. And it's like, come on, people. This is, wow, you're really that bad at making this. <laughs> anyway, so things get all bundled together. And in your book, you break it down that it's once you have... You run it through the lobbyists and the different interests, and you got to get these people who are going to make the decision, make this people's decision. You end up getting outcomes that are like really not that great. And part of it's because we're trying to make this huge, big level decision for everyone. Everybody, right. And that's where you you have a a conflict between the, the values that people hold and the sensible way to advance those values. So that if you're thinking in a very linear way, if you're a a progressive and you're thinking in a very linear way, you might say the Supreme Court has made these horrible decisions recently on abortion, on guns, and on the environment. These decisions that are fundamentally counter to my values as a progressive. And then you might say, well, okay, then we need Congress to step up and impose all of those restrictions on a federal level to everyone. And that makes sense from a linear perspective, except that it was Congress's failure to make decisions on those three issues that led the EPA to stretch the Clean Air Act a little further than the courts could clearly stand behind. And that motivated the courts to finish Congress's sentence on abortion and on guns because Congress wasn't acting. So the courts have stepped in and originally liberals made the decision on abortion and conservatives have just recently made the decision on guns and they're both just legislating through the courts. So if you're progressive and you truly stand for the values of caring for people at the local at the local level caring for the oppressed liberating those who have been marginalized it's still okay to challenge the idea that you should do that at the federal level the highest level possible and it's okay to say maybe it's smarter for us to do that at the community level. Maybe we need to decentralize power more to the community level so that we can make smarter decisions for ourselves in our communities around this. Yeah. It's... You and your in this together, you talk about this as like the soft path and the hard path. As mm-hmm. The hard path being like, let's just linear, let's get it done. And then soft path is a lot more about flexible, it's adaptive, and it's much more local, and there's distributed decision-making and all sorts of pieces. And and I, and I there's a way that, like, making sure that we have the right incentives and motivations is much more effective ways to large movements of action than trying to just regulate it or make these decisions for everyone because it and what was interesting is so in the 
in the West Virginia versus the EPA court decision, what they started, and I'm not sure if it actually started with this decision or if it was existed already, but they call it the major questions doctrine. And they're basically saying, this is a major question about whether or not we should control the amount of CO2 emissions. And major questions, that's for the legislature. And then, of course, as we were just talking about, legislatures sucks at major questions. <laughs> and also, that's not necessarily the way to be making this decision. And But what I find to be interesting is I actually found this article. It seems as though, even though the regulations on some of the coal industry have been reduced or not happening anymore after this court decision, the coal industry is closing down. There's a way that coal is on its way out because culturally we're just not into that anymore. And that force, whatever that is, that trajectory of culture is more powerful than any regulation or not. Yeah. Absurd. It's absurd in a way that the court took on that particular case to begin with, because as you say, coal is disappearing from the marketplace for lots of different reasons. EPA regulations that were intended to drive coal out of the market to a great extent couldn't be adopted because, and they couldn't be adopted for long because the Obama administration's clean power plan ran up against conflict, probably involved the EPA taking more power than Congress had originally intended with the Clean Air Act. But at the same time, what's the EPA supposed to do? They're supposed to keep us, keep the air clean and keep us healthy. And Congress was not giving them the authority Mm -hmm. needed to do that. And so they took the authority through the executive branch and now the judicial branch steps in. But the reality is that the marketplace has now virtually eliminated coal from the market here in the United States, not in China, not in India, not in much of the rest of the world, but here in the United States, we've already accomplished what the Clean Power Plan was setting out to accomplish. So we don't even really need to go through this rigmarole. But somehow the Supreme Court now has decided to take these classic cases that speak to the base of the Republican Party and to make examples of them. And I'm not sure that that shows judicial restraint at all. There's a whole other conversation about just the kind of broken legislature. Executive branch isn't as powerful as we thought it was. People imagine that it is. And the court kind of filling in the gap and making some heavy decisions. And that that, uh, our structure is (laughs) good. Shout out to the designers of the Constitution. Amazingly resilient system that we've come up with and that they came up with. And and it's time for some upgrades or some it improvements. It is. I wonder. And I bet the people could come up with those. I bet if we had the We the People uh, gathering, a thousand of us, representative sample of the country, and we sat down in 2014 and said, what's wrong with our country? And how do we need to change our 
constitution to deal with that, that the people would make some very balanced, wise decisions. But the powers that be will not, because we've got three powers acting here. We have an extreme left that thinks it's fighting big corporations and an extreme right that thinks it's fighting big government when both of them are battling each other and allowing a essentially a kind of mushy corporate state political industry to operate and make decisions that are best for their monthly retainers with vested interests. That's the system that we have. It's nobody's fault, almost nobody's fault. If we killed all the people who are doing this intentionally, we'd still have a problem. It just is the market that has evolved that we need to change. So yeah, I'm thinking about that video that Represent Us has where there's the, like the, how many people want a piece of legislation to pass and from zero to a hundred percent and how likely is it to pass? And mm -hmm. it's flat line across 30% yeah. every time because yeah. though, because that mushy corporate state is actually figuring out what the decision is going to be mm -hmm. and all those negotiations and be the room, you know, all those conversations that we hear that mm -hmm. they're working on the bill and they're talking to each other and we don't really know yeah. what's going on. And yeah. they come out and they're like, here, we got it all figured out. And so I'm going to try like a, a big question here. What's the move now? Because mm -hmm. I can see, so we have the citizens sort of saying, I want problem solvers. We have deliberative processes that we know that work, mm -hmm. but that aren't yeah. built into our institution and mm -hmm. aren't super popular for the political industrial complex. It seems like, I, I always keep imagining, I want to see some politicians coming out and being like, actually, you know what? My opinion doesn't matter about this. Y'all's opinion matter about this. I'm going to make deliberate. I'm going to use, yeah, like thoughtful, participatory, deliberative processes to make my decisions. And someone doing that would be a real game changer, right? Like, yeah. could be like, ah, wait, what? Oh, wait uh, hold on. Yeah. We're having a debate here. And it's like, well, actually, mm -hmm. no, that's not how I'm going to play this game. And in fact, now we don't need debates. We need dialogues. And so, I don't know, there's different strategic ways on how to think about how to make that happen. And then I think that there needs to be more awareness, of course, that these exist, right? Because I don't think, I mean, the America in One Room is great because they really did a good job of documenting it and making it seem really clear. And if folks are interested about that, there'll be links in the show notes. But I guess... There's, I don't know. What's the move? Where are you looking yeah. right now? Yeah. Well, of course, nobody has the complete solution, and we have no. to be, we have to be satisfied with with understanding the principles and moving in the right direction. And then the other wonderful thing is that we don't need perfection in the end. We need system something that's good enough that it actually gets us to a successful a successful democracy and successful uh, governance but we should aim for high quality and so here's some of the ingredients that i think need to come together first of all we do need to re-empower the middle 70 percent of the public and that means 
from a very logical, rational perspective, we need to organize people, particularly in the 15 swing states that have some competitive races. We need to organize a 5% or so portion of the public who are who step into the lead and decide that they're the ones that should be deciding who gets elected in these contested races and that commit that they will only vote for problem solvers regardless of what party they're a part of. They may be Republicans, and if there's a problem solver Republicans, they're gonna vote for the problem solving Republican. But if there is no problem solving Republican, they're gonna vote for the problem solver independent or Democrat. And the same is true for the Democrats. They need to be willing to do that, to say, yes, I'm a Democrat, but first, I'm a problem solver. I'm an American, I'm a problem solver. I stand for results. I don't stand for an institution. And we can all say that. So we need 5% of folks to do that. And that's very gettable. It's a very doable objective that's got a price tag to it and a, a, a linear path to get there. Um, we also need a system or multiple systems of just engaging with each other. And there I do really like the American one-room model or the deliberative democracy model. And a, there are a lot of more informal or smaller, more local variations on that. So my personal thing is, I think we should have a third convention every uh, every four years. So we got the Democratic convention, we got the Republican convention. Both of those are stage managed and politicized to the extreme. We need to have a, a people's constitutional convention or just a people's convention that looks at the health of our democracy and a representative sampling chosen by uh, uh, experts at, for their random representativeness to engage and to look at one or more sets of problems and then to come out with solution sets that the media can actually cover and that are not preset. We won't know at the beginning of the convention what the convention will produce, but it will produce whether it's looking at one issue or a dozen issues or the state of our democracy and what, what we should change in the constitution. The media won't know in advance what the results are. This would be like a new experience, real news. And they could cover the real news. And then that becomes the guide point for the nominees for the two parties. Are we going to completely ignore what the informed majority of Americans have said? Or are we going to represent those Americans? If we decide we're going to represent them, then we have a democratic republic, the way that our framers told us we, we could, if we could keep it. If they don't, then we have a really inefficient, totalitarian, authoritarian mush. And China will look really good by comparison. Inefficient, totalitarian mush. I, one of the advantages of a dictatorship is that they're really efficient, but yeah. But the one where people aren't really being listened to, or the decisions aren't really being made, and but they're also not making good decisions, right? Or they're not even making effective bad not decisions. Good. Yeah, not exactly. Good. Not good. No, yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, I think I would like to see that or that being able to see, because one of my mentors, Kenneth Cloak, is it like talks about public policy issues. If you can get a group of people with diverse perspectives to talk to each other and come to some sort of agreement about something and bring it to a politician and be like, hey, I got these people to come up with this solution to this, that's you'd be fool not to go with the whatever the people have come up with and this people's convention i I like it and there's a way that as you said some of these like big issues we're dealing with in the country we've been dealing with for decades and we have not solved them we have not even come close yet so taking the time to have a thoughtful conversation that might take weeks or a a good a year like totally would be worth it because the something that's like not only can we come up with more sustainable decisions but then also have a process for doing that we're spending 10 billion dollars a year or so on the political industry to elect our our public officials and keep the population divided. And by keeping the population divided and and making 10 billion in the process, we're giving the influence peddling industry the ability to manage $4.5 trillion a year and uh, divide it up among vested interests to do something reasonably approximating what the public kind of wants. So if the public wants a healthcare system, we divide up the money and we hand it out to vested interests that will give us a healthcare system. If we want national security, we will divide up the money and give it to military contractors to give us national security. And, but it's all so framed by that money trading system that has very little to do with intelligent thought or the people's will that people feel that they have nothing to do with the lives that they're leading and that their job is basically to demand things so that Congress will pay vested interests to supply them to them. And that's a tragedy for democracy. We can do better than that. We're smarter than that. We're a lot smarter than the political industry is. Totally. There's a line in the book, I forget who the quote is from, but, you know, if we're not doing it, then it's going to be energetically inseminated by special interest. Yeah, that was James Hansen, the, the nuclear physicist who opposed the uh, cap and trade legislation that Democrats and Republicans had agreed on. Democrats had agreed on and a couple of Republicans were brave enough to support it. But James Hansen was saying this is a sellout and the environmental community was supporting it because, yes, it was a sellout, but it was our sellout. That was a sellout to the finance sector and to the coal sector and energy folks here and there. And it was, interestingly, it was a pretty good, impressive, it was impressive that they could pull it together, but it wasn't a solution to climate. It was a way to pass something that would pay off a lot of vested interests to work at it, but not really solve the problem. Yeah. And those are the kinds of things we'll keep on experiencing unless we change it up. Yeah. So last question to wrap up here for the folks that are out there. I'm like, I want to be a problem solver and I want to help us move this forward. What actions might you ask them to take? Well, I would say, you know, there's our approach to this. And by our, I mean, in this together, America.org 
come to our site, inthistogetheramerica.org, there are a group of NGOs, 10, really 20 or 30, but about 10 NGOs that we are most enthusiastic about who are all a big part of the solution. They each are high-performance NGOs doing great work in defending democracy and defending real solutions to issues like climate and other challenges. And we're supporting them. So by coming to In This Together America, you can use your name, give your name, designate yourself as a problem solver, and and make the pledge that you're going to be supporting problem-solving leaders and companies, and we'll give you ways to do that every week. And we hope you will invest your coin, your dollars, in supporting the groups that are doing this amazing work. And what's most important is that they do that work together. That's how a system works. We're trying to create a system here of groups that are good, that are masters at their niches, masters at grassroots organizing, or masters at working inside the beltway, masters at organizing MAGA voters, masters at organizing progressive voters. And to put these groups together who are dedicated to solutions, and that's how you help. That's one way to help. Wonderful. Bill, I just want to say thank you again for all that you're doing and for putting your hat in the ring here and leaning so hard on this and for so long. So thank you. Yeah. Thank you. I really appreciate your work as well, Duncan. I know that this is a, a passion area for you too, and it is for so many people. And it's so easy to get oh, exhausted by it and to just decide, I'm just going to live my life and watch it. And, uh, you know, Netflix is a great, is a great pastime, but let's actually engage our, in our democracy and make our kids proud. I love that. Yeah, I think one of the things that comes to my mind is, as you, like, make those pledges, tell people that you've done that. Mm-hmm. I think it's really, I think it would be, I picture someone, like, getting their ballot and being like, hey, everyone. I'm going to vote for people that are really trying to solve problems this year. And I just wanted to say that. And I don't know, there's something about letting people know that this is like a different way of thinking. It's so different from what we're used to that will get people's attention. Yeah, it will. And I'll tell you what I'd love is if there's a meme waiting to express out there. I know there's a name for what we're doing, for who we are and and this movement, and once we define that, we let the system define, that's when the threshold will be passed and will be successful. So all you creative people out there, go out and spread the meme and, and define and grow this movement. We know the people are out there. We just need to trigger and motivate people to step up. Please. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you, Doug. Thank you so much for listening to the OmniWin Project podcast. I am so grateful to today's guest for being on today's podcast. And if you liked what they had to say and you want to learn more about them or any of the things we discussed in the episode today, 
Check them out in your show notes right there on your podcast app or come on down to omniwinproject.com where you can get even more information. You can find a video version of this podcast as well as the transcript. And there are many more episodes that are going to be coming soon. So don't forget to subscribe to the podcast right now and share it with a friend while you're at it. As you go into the rest of your day, I invite you to remember that we are all co-creating our future right now and we all have a role to play in the whole. Thank you for listening to the Omni Win Project podcast. Have a wonderful day.